You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you're a young child, you want to grow up and work at a factory, right? Well, that's probably not the case. You probably wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Ended up as a startup executive, an internet CEO, a software salesperson, a project manager, or a web designer, or something like that. We strive to put every American in college. We strive for jobs that will utilize the education that we have. Yet, in the aggregate, there seems to be a wanting for more of the type of jobs that we used to have in America, jobs making things. This is an interesting question. And Sandy Weinberger writes in the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, wondering if you can comment on the percent of the economy is manufacturing versus service of all types, public, private, and how nations fared as the percent of manufacturing declines. And here's the question Sandy asks, can we prosper with a shrinking heavy industry sector. Well, it gets more into economics, and I dabble there, but it's not my specialty, so I certainly referred you to a couple other places. But to some extent, I can't resist the question. I think manufacturing gets more attention these days. Certainly, it's getting some recent attention from the Obama administration. It helps to have Ohio as one of the key swing states in the 2012 election. Perhaps there is more emotional attachment to manufacturing work, work making things, sounds better, blue-collar, working man. It's connected with a higher level of union organization, which gives it an emotional appeal and a lobby group physically present in our politics as well. You might call it a Bob Seger factor. But when something is privileged, my analytical spider sense tingles. Does it deserve the elevated place it has? What's so bad about service economy? So just because a a company makes a physical item, why is that more important than a service, an intangible? Let's look at it a bit, and we'll go back to history. And Alexander Hamilton, of course, thought that manufacturing was the basis of a new economy for America. He recommended tariffs to protect American industries, subsidies funded by those tariffs to help manufacturing, to give grants to people who would have to build the giant industrial machines we would need. He issued a report on manufacturers, which said the U.S. was in shabby shape in 1791 in terms of its industry. He himself, along with others, helped to fund an industrial area in New Jersey. But all of this talk is when we were building up from an agricultural economy. This is when the nation was in its infancy, relied on imported goods, providing very little services. When the rich countries of the world were the ones with the ironworks. And if all you did was raise corn and pigs, 
you'd be sending your coin over to the country that made stuff. In 1791, that would have been Great Britain and a little bit France. Now, in modern times, things are different from when Alexander Hamilton issued his report. So compare and contrast. Great Britain is one of many countries in modern times that is rich from not making stuff. Countries that are rich now make stuff, but they service stuff more. The World Bank shows, for instance, that high-income countries are on average 66% service, only 32% industrial manufacturing. Low-income countries are 35% service and 38% industrial. They make stuff, but their countries are not the seat of empires. The U.S. has transformed, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. When Harry Truman was president, U.S. manufacturing was 26% of GDP, and now it's somewhere near 15 and the estimates of this percentage vary a bit, but the estimates of the drop do not. But here's the thing. Where is, as in your question, the story of that country that went all services and then went bankrupt and suffered? I haven't seen it. In her own case, despite that manufacturing decline I talked about from Harry Truman's time to our time, we didn't have a decline in GDP, we had an increase, $244 billion to $14 trillion now. I know, population's changed, inflation's changed, right. But what about per capita GDP? It's up from 9561 to 41,000 real dollars, 2009 dollars. And we are not alone in this move to more of a service economy. Here's UN numbers. Germany went from 35% in 1970 to 19% manufacturing. Canada from 21 to 11, Brazil from 24 to 13, and the world from 27 to 15. That's world average, and yes, I know that Bill Gates walks into a bar and everyone is a millionaire on average. But it does suggest that the idea that a good economy can only come from factories may be misleading. There is a counter to this, of course. The manufacturing may have dropped lower in the United States than other nations. It may have dropped faster as well. Germany, Switzerland, Japan have higher than world average incomes, and they have higher than world average percent of manufacturing. And there is, of course, this question, which is probably embedded in the question you asked, of how far can this really go? Okay, so maybe it's 15 13%, whatever right now is, is making stuff, right? What if it gets to 2%? What if it gets to 100%? Is that when we're really in trouble and we're having to send our coin to countries that make stuff? An example of an evolution in our economy can be seen with the agricultural percentages where it was the lion's share of the economy, certainly not measured exactly in 1791, but it's only 1.2% of the U.S. economy now. And it's seen as something we have to protect and defend, the farms, right? Billy Nelson, tractor, all that. I don't know that our manufacturing percentage will get that far down. There are some things that just have to be made here until true teleportation devices are designed. There are a few items that can't wait for what is normally sea shipping from China. I think in a podcast like this, uh, history, politics, what I talk about. So I would encourage you to listen to some other places, ask some other folks as well. I'm skeptical of the idea that there is something so wrong with the, the idea of service, but that's just me. I like to listen to a podcast called Econ Talk. And uh, in a few episodes back, he talked to Adam Davison, who is also on another podcast, the Planet Money podcast. Both of those are good economic casts. I tend to listen to Econ Talk just a little more quote, in the profession of economics, uh, but it's long and you got to put some time into it. 
There was one uh, with this Adam Davidson about manufacturing. He described a factory for car parts, custom car parts that had to be there in, say, three days anywhere across America. So this plant had to be you know, located in the United States. One, maybe two people on this factory floor and a lot of robots. The people are there to program the robots, to set them up, and to fix them when they break down. They're engineers, and they aren't the kind of guys who just chisel or scrape or aim a drill bit. They're experts in calculus and physics to be able to figure out the exact angle to aim the robot's scalpel in order to make a certain custom part. Yes, these are the manufacturing jobs you might see of 2012. That given that it takes less people, it could be impossible to boost the economy with new manufacturing jobs because it takes less people, a lot less people, to make in 2009 what it took to make in 1950. Productivity has increased every year since then. I've seen an estimate as much as 2.3% every year since then. So I guess a funny way to think of this is, you know, is the future of America with the steel worker or with Bob Seger, the singer that sings about the steel worker and the steel worker's life, you know? Yes, obviously there can only be one Bob Seger, so that's not really a good representation of the service economy. But what of all about the people that sing for the product? And that would be the salespeople, right, who are out there promoting marketing people, people who do the accounting for the company, people who go out and try to get investors for that plant. So, you know, which one do we look at? I suspect we are viewing services as less valuable than they are, as low-paying, and as something that only our own countrymen and women would be interesting in, as opposed to making products. That makes sense if we speak of waiters or retail salespeople, right? We're just selling stuff to ourselves, bringing us pie and coffee. But when you start talking about an e-commerce web designer, you know, someone who can program an API, a doctor who can get on an online visualization and make commentary, a copyright lawyer, a financier, and all the service that might go with these professions, a business startup consultant, a writer, a mobile app programmer. Our ability to define jobs hurts in answering this question. Our ability to define services is difficult too. Cell phones, computers, these are products made, but the factory part of those products is not the most interesting part, I would suspect. It's the service that comes around it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Their products wrapped in service. I think service jobs get complicated and so much that you can't even... Think about them if you're a government planner or us talking on this podcast, you know. It's something that entrepreneurs create, the market for goods and services create. Because companies decide what function they need. Maybe a guy that designs Excel spreadsheets all day. That may be what's needed, at least in the time. So I think it's just something that's hard to define, you know. People don't go to school to be a project manager or a salesperson. But in many cases, that's where the jobs are. 
Sales is a great example here. Sales is something that is often missing from any kind of discussion of implementing government policy, right? They like to think of core professions that are easy to define. Sales is kind of a hard one to define. What does a salesperson really do? But in the most positive sense, a salesperson can add value to a product that's been made, a manufactured product, add a lot of value by getting it to the right person, saving the buying company time. And obviously a salesperson, and this is the reason I think sales employs so many people, is that they're obviously adding value to the companies that manufactured the stuff because they're getting users for it. And a final word on this is to keep in mind that government is services. So as that grows, it employs people and increases the percentage of services. Back in Harry Truman's time, we had a smaller government in all aspects than we do now. To reduce the service component of our economy, we'd have to have the government perform less tasks, hire less police, less inspectors, and the like. So to wrap up, I think my take on it is anything that produces dollars is a part of the economy, and it's a positive thing, and it can be, if done well, sold to other countries. If we're paying for it here, it's something that other people would want as well. So I personally don't have much issue with the increase in the service portion of the economy. I would suggest that there may be a portion when it gets so small that it requires government protection so that it doesn't go to zero. I do question whether the current ratio is worthy of intervention at this point. And the questions keep coming. Kirk Roth asks, I feel like giving some feedback on the recent Your TV Lied to You cast, the one about presidential scandals. I've been listening for years, and this is one of my favorites. One question, though. The commercial breaks in 1972. It was fun to hear them, and I pretended that I was there watching because this was before my time. Perhaps the fun of it was the reason for including them. But I did find myself wondering if they were including to lead to a subtle point you wanted to make, perhaps the distortions of the public media or the, quote, salesmanship of politics. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, thanks, Kirk. I appreciate it. I think the commercial breaks in there were entertainment, and that's my sense of it, an overall sense of what the average Joe watching TV back then would have seen. It's not really ABC's fault that they didn't catch Watergate. Maybe it's a little their fault. They were being lied to by members of the nation's government at the time. But I thought it was good to introduce the idea that, quote, Watergate existed earlier than Nixon's I'm not a crook speech, his ride on the green helicopter, even the Senate hearings, that it was available to voters and media 
during the 1972 campaign as they were making their decision. But that it, as a scandal, was not ready yet, perhaps? It wasn't looked at enough, and to a degree, the press was intimidated by a popular White House at that time. In 72, as I said, you couldn't even call it Watergate. That came afterwards, especially as the administration's performance went down, and then the scandal took on new meaning. It's too much to say that gas prices go up, so we got to find a scandal with the president. But it might suggest that scandals may be fungible. Our perception of them may be fungible. They're worse when people are grumpy, forgiven a little when times are good. And if that's true, the current administration, since things are obviously not rosy, would be extra vulnerable to a scandal if that occurred. So that's my thinking on that. But the television commercials and the whole approach, I don't mind if you go with your interpretation rather than mine. I'm going to give you that wall of history, and I don't mind if it becomes like a Rothko painting. And you take from it what you will, your interpretation. Well, I always try to make some current politics statement and tie it in. I kind of don't mind keeping it more and more at the inference level. You have freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and there's no reason to submit to an omnipotent narrator, even if it's me. But I do want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.